0: almost fell down. The scarf around the table was hooked on my foot. But I've always been a klutz, so that's no big deal. <laughs> Hi, I'm Sue. Hi, Sue. Very grateful member of the Al-Anon Family Group, because today I love an alcoholic, and I'm glad to be here. I want to thank the committee for inviting Keith and I to come. And uh, It's so neat to see our friends that are here. Now, uh, I got to be here, uh, this last September and go to a woman to woman. And, uh, for the alcoholics that are in this room, the guys, you got a real sick bunch of women here. <laughs> and they love hearing it. Yeah. Isn't that funny? It's a compliment in this program to be sick. <laughs> and honest John and Grumpy and Sam and yeah, and being with the speakers, we've all, uh, known each other for a long time. And, uh, we've heard each other's stories over and over again. And sometimes we've been asked to substitute for each other, but it just didn't fit. Yeah. <laughs> so, it's good to see you this morning. Well, I thank Debbie for picking us up at the airport and, uh, and being our, my host. It's, uh, I just love being in groups of people like this. I love being with sick people because I know we're all here because we're not all there. And uh, and Keith and I have fun, you know. And a lot of you have told me this morning you really enjoyed Keith last night. You love to hear him share. Love to hear him talk. Well, I want you to know that's what got me sick. <laughs> And uh, he said that we have fun a lot today, and we do. For a couple that used to fight on a daily basis, we have so much fun. And I just love him. You know, he's my entertainment today. (laughs) And today we fit. You know, we've been married uh, 38 years and uh, been together for 40. And uh, we were always threatening each other with divorce. Who's going to leave this weekend? And... uh, and we met you and we decided to stay. My sponsor told me to keep him. I'd probably get another one sick or sicker. sicker. <laughs> so, to practice on him, he was handy. <laughs> and, uh, I'd made a decision that I went through all the hell and I wasn't going to let anybody else cash in on sobriety. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, he told you about my leopard outfit. Yes, I had on leopard pants, a leopard jacket. I had on a raincoat that has a leopard lining. I had on leopard tennis shoes, and my suitcase and my bag are leopard. And everybody was looking at me, and uh, I looked at him. And, and you guys know Keith; he's got tattoos all over and everything. And I used to think, what's a lady like me doing in a place like this? <laughs> And I looked at him yesterday and I said, you know, everybody's looking at us. I think for the first time people are looking at us and saying, boy, they sure do go together. (laughs) I'm walking around like Peg Bundy. (laughs) And he's the tattoo man. But who cares, you know? Who cares? Because you've given us the freedom to be ourselves today. I don't have to worry about it. And he was all into the leopard stuff, so I switched and went snake on him today. <laughs> and I started out by slithering up on him this morning. <laughs> in uh, this program, the 12 Steps of Alcoholics Anonymous and uh, the program of Al-Anon has enhanced our relationship. We would not be together today if it wasn't for these 12 steps, sponsorships, a lot of meetings, and a lot of newcomers in our life, because that's what's done it for us. When I was new in this program, I was told uh, not to work on my marriage. To uh, work on my relationship with a power greater than myself and my marriage would be fine. And that's what I've done through the direction of strong sponsorship. And uh, because of that, today I have a great marriage I have a great relationship with my daughter, and it's beyond anything I ever dreamed of. I had a lady when uh, I was new in the program, she said she made a list of everything she wanted. Because people promised her that good things would happen if she chose to work this program. You know what, I am so grateful I never made a list. I never made a list, and I haven't been disappointed from day one. From May of 1976, it's gotten better. I don't know what day. Don't you think it's funny? I don't know if you noticed this morning, but I did. Alcoholics get up here and they say, my sobriety date is, and they give you the month, the day, and the year. You get an alon up here and you get the month and the year, but we don't have a clue what day we came in. We were in whiteouts.
1: <laughs>
0: I just know once he got sober, I needed some answers and, uh, and the guy that 12 stepped us told me I was an old idea and that I needed help. And it was the first time I ever listened to anybody put me down. And, uh, and I started going someplace for myself because I needed help. I wanted some answers. I'd search forever for some answers and, uh, because I thought I had them all. And, uh, I got to you and I found out I didn't know anything. And today, the dumber I am, the smarter it gets. You know, the true, the definition of true humility is being teachable. And, uh, and today I know that I am teachable. I don't think I'm humble all the time, but I am teachable. And, uh, and I'm working toward that. I know I'm a lot more humble than I was when I first came in here because uh I had all the answers and they were all the wrong answers and they were all the wrong ideas. I wasn't raised in an alcoholic home and uh, and uh I wondered when I got here, you know, what is a lady like me doing in a place like this because I heard that once you were attracted to the alcoholic personality, you would always be attracted to the alcoholic personality. And people grew up in alcoholic homes and that's why they were here. And, And I'd never been in touch with the disease of alcoholism before until I met Keith. You know, my family was so-called Normie family. My dad worked in the oil fields, and he worked seven days a week and and worked very hard. And I had an older sister and a younger brother and my mom. And we lived in a trailer house, and we we followed the oil wells around... uh, Oklahoma Panhandle, Western Kansas, and Texas Panhandle. And I'd go to school two or three weeks in one school, and we'd pick up and we'd move someplace else. And I never felt like I belonged anywhere. You know, and I always wanted to be a hometown girl, and I never was a hometown girl. And and I never felt like I fit. And uh today I know that I'm here because I fit. Yeah, you know, and that's one of the best feelings. I've found home, you know. And, uh, moving around like that, people would call me oil field trash. And I'd feel like a nobody and like it didn't count. And it's just like something inside of me believed that. And then I, uh, we progressed on our life moved on and, uh, we ended up in, uh, Pariton, Texas and my folks settled down there. And my sister ran off and got married and, uh, after a period of time, my father passed away with cancer and that left my mother and my younger brother and I at home. After a period of time, my, Mother started dating, and I hated her for that because she's being disloyal to my father and uh I started rebelling, and I started looking for love in all the wrong places and uh I ended up uh and I went to mother's home in San Antonio, Texas, and I went there and I stayed there for a period of time and uh I'm so grateful that I did. I gave a child up for adoption there because no way at that age was I ready willing or able to become a parent and uh I heard a counselor in there that told me something that I never heard again until I met you. And she told me God uses people to help other people. And that God had used me as an instrument to help these people have a child that they couldn't have. And I accepted that answer and I went home. And And I got back home and the kids that I used to run with were boring and mundane and I didn't like them anymore. They were childish actors. And I was at home one night and my mom was going to go out with her friends and she's going to go to a honky-tonk. She said, would you like to go? And I said, sure, I don't have nothing else to do. And I went with her and we walked in that place and it was loud. The music was loud. The people were laughing and they were rowdy and they were fighting and they were drunk and it was smoky and it's like, yeah. (laughs) I loved it. I fit. I loved it. It was exciting and it, it was happening. And I watched this cowboy move the room, and everywhere he went, something was happening. And I thought it took a lot of courage to do what he was doing. He was starting fights. (laughs) And he came running past me, and he said, honey, let me know when the fight's over. And he ran in the woman's restroom to hide. And uh, pretty soon the fight was over, and I said, okay, cowboy, you can come out now. And he came out, and he asked me for the last dance. Usually the last dance was a slow dance where you could rub up against each other, get ready to go home. And this was a fast dance, and it just kept getting faster and faster and faster, and we never missed a lick, and I loved it. He got me downtown in the fast lane right now. He did for me what nothing else has ever done for me. And I know today the only difference between an alcoholic and an al is the obsession. His was the booze, and mine was the boozer. And that was the only difference. I think it's so funny, you Alki sober up, we're just alike. You're all Al-Anons. <laughs> <laughs> just don't smell no more
1: <laughs>
0: so, and uh, Keith called me up and asked me out my mom said no you're not going out with him he's older than you he's been married before and he's in trouble all the time and I said I don't care it's kind of like the little gal that had nothing to do so she went down at the bar in the afternoon and she's sitting in there and uh this guy came in and he slams a $100 bill down on the counter of the bar. Tells the bartender, he said, I want a bo- bottle of Jack Daniels and don't let it go dry. And the bartender said, well, looks like you're going to put on one heck of a drunk. And he said, I am. I just got out of prison. And the bartender said, oh, yeah? And he said, uh, yeah. And he said, well, what were you in there for? And he said, for killing my wife. The bartender said, oh, whoa, okay. And so he takes off to go get his Jack Daniels and... This little gal sitting down on the end of the bar, she looks at him and, whoa. She goes down, sits at the bar stool next to him, looks at him says, so, I hear you're single. <laughs> and that's me. <laughs> he was single.
1: <laughs>
0: and we started dating and uh, he came over at my house to pick me up the, the first night and we walked outside. There's no car. And I go, now, wait a minute. My date's picked me out in my car. And he said, you don't understand. I've had my license taken away forever, and I totaled my car. And I said, no problem. And so I got him in my car, and I knew what to do. I took him to the drive-in movie. And at the drive-in movie, I knew what to do. You sit there, and you kiss and smooch and steam up the windows. And we sat there, and we watched the movie. And I can remember thinking, this must be what it's like to be with a more mature man. <laughs> And then I remember looking over, and Keith had a six-pack of beer sitting between his legs that was more important to him than me. And that set up my obsession. I wanted to be number one in that man's life, no matter what. And we started dating, and uh, and uh there was times that he wouldn't come and pick me up. He wouldn't show up. He'd stand me up. And that smug and arrogance would come up in me, and I'd say, you can't treat me this way. Doesn't he know who this is? And I'll show him, you know. And I'd be so angry, and uh, the next day I'd just be grumbling all around, being mad. He can't treat me this way, and who does he think he is, and blah, 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 blah. You know, and the phone would ring, and I'd pick it up, and he'd say, hi, how are you? And I'd say, where were you last night? And he'd say, well, I don't know. Why?
1: <laughs> and
0: I'd say, because we were supposed to have a date last night. And he'd say, no problem, I'll come pick you up tonight. And I'd go, okay. And then I'd really be mad because I didn't tell him all the things that I was going to tell him, you know. And so I think, well, I'll show him if he just knows how I feel. I got to show him how it feels, and if and if he sees it like that, he'll understand. And so right before he'd get there to pick me up, I'd chug a lug a few beers, and he'd walk in the house and look at me and he'd go, "Well, you're not going." I go, "Why not?" And He'd say, "Cause you're drunk." I go well. I go with because you 'cause you're when you're drunk, and he'd say, "Yeah, you hang out with drunks. I don't."
1: <laughs> and he
0: was right. Yeah. And he'd come over at my house and uh, to watch TV during the middle of the week and. Uh, You know, oh, I thought that was great. And I'd talk to my girlfriends and they'd be talking about their boyfriends coming over and doting on them and, you know, kissing and smooching on the sofa watching TV and how neat that was. And my boyfriend was coming over and he was falling asleep, I thought. I did not understand pass out. And Keith was coming over at my house and passing out. And it's like, one more time, if he does that to me one more time, I'm going to show him what he can't do to me. I'll get even, cause you see, I used to, I started up a pattern, I love the sweet taste of revenge. I will show him. And so he came over at my house, and I'd given him the lecture about, you know, you come over here to be with me, and you gotta pay attention to me, you know, if you wanna sleep, stay home, and all that kind of stuff, but staying home wasn't acceptable either, you know. And, uh, so he came over one night, and he fell asleep on me one more time, and I thought, I'll show you. And so Keith used to have long hair and a long beard, And so I went in, and I got the razor, and I shaved half his head and half his face off. And uh, he woke up, and he went home. You know, and, God, I felt good, you know. and uh, Because it's going to make him mad, and I've gotten even and all that kind of stuff. And he came back the next night picked me up for a date, and he looked the same. He went around like that for two weeks, <laughs> didn't say a word, and I thought he was so cute, I'd just laugh and giggle, we'd drag Main Street, we'd go down this way, and it'd be this side, <laughs> go this way, and this way. <laughs> he'd say, people here think I'm two-faced anyway, you know, and I'd just giggle, I thought he was so cute, and he was, you know, and... Uh, We'd start having a fight and he wouldn't be doing what I wanted him to do and I'd grab the keys out of the car and throw them out in a vacant lot and he'd have to go out and find them and, uh, and he'd come back and get back in the car and he'd be so mad and we'd start fighting and we'd start kicking and I'd start hitting and, and he'd give me a black eye and he'd take me home. And, uh, I remember walking in that house one night and my mom said, you know, what do you do to this man to make him treat you like that? And I'd say, what do I do to him? Look what he just did to me not taking responsibility for my own actions. I didn't know that if I stayed out of his face, you know, but he was drunk and he was doing things that he shouldn't be doing and I had to show him and you know, I had to show him what's right. Yeah. You know. And, uh, we dated for two years like that and, uh, he got a draft notice. We decided we couldn't live without each other. And so we ran off to Amarillo and got married and, uh, the next weekend, he went to take his draft physical, and he didn't pass his physical, and so Uncle Sam let me have him.
1: <laughs> and uh,
0: Shortly after that, uh, his folks and I decided Keith needed to go back to school because he wasn't doing nothing. And uh He'd been in school for many years and never gotten a degree because he'd moved around to all different schools, and he's losing credits and all that kind of stuff. And so what he needed to do was just stay put. And I knew that I had what it took to just make him stay put. And so uh, we decided that he needed to go back to school, and so we moved to Stillwater, Oklahoma, and Keith enrolled in college one more time. And uh, we were there a short period of time, and we had our daughter, Simone. And I remember when they handed me that little girl, thinking, thank God she's a girl. Because, you see, Keith was a drunk, his dad was a drunk, and his granddad was a town drunk. I didn't know. That alcoholism doesn't care what sex, color, race, or creed you are. It takes you to the gates of insanity and hell and you don't even have to drink booze to go there. And I thought having a girl was gonna make it okay. Yeah, because I didn't know that alcoholism doesn't care. And, uh, and I love that little girl. And, uh, we tried to be the best parents we could be and Keith and I get in those fights and she'd get in the way. And uh it's not pretty, and you guys know what it's like. you either had those fights with your kids there, or you've been the kid there. You know, alcoholism affects everybody in the home. It's a family disease. And uh, Keith stayed there for four years to get a two-year degree, and I took all the credit. Because, you see, I had to have that validation. Because alcoholism had started telling me I was nobody, and I didn't count, and I didn't know anything. And the alcoholism in me started believing that. The disease in me started believing the disease in him. Because, you see, I'm one of those kind of people that believes that Al-Anon gets the disease of alcoholism. It's a disease. It's a family disease. And it's, a, it's, it's, contact, it's contacted through association. And it's passed on through the environment of living. And uh, we were carrying that disease in our home big time. And we'd go to those honky-tonks and we'd have the fights. You know, it's so funny because Keith fought all the time every time he drank. And I'd tell him, he'd say, let's go tonight. And I'd give him the lecture, don't fight, don't get in a fight. That is so stupid, don't do that. And he'd say, okay, I promise I won't tonight. And so we go there, you know, we'd be dancing, and the priest and I'd say, you know, I'm going to go to the ladies' room. I want you to sit down here and stay put. Don't fight. Don't get in a fight. You know how I feel about that. And he'd say, okay, fine, I promise. And i go in the ladies' room, and I'd come out, and there'd be a big fight right in the middle of the dance floor. And I'd think, darn him, he can't pay attention, he doesn't do what's right, he never listens to me, and I went plowing right through all those guys, and I got right in the middle, and this guy just sopped me right in the face and knocked me clear down on the floor, and I'm there. everybody's pulling me up, and I'm going, where is he, where is he, and they go, who, and I said, Keith, and they go, well, I don't know, and I look over, and he's sitting in the booth.
1: <laughs>
0: Alcoholics never do what they're supposed to be doing, you know? And we had those kind of situations all the time, and I hated going there because he was always fighting, and, and I'd have to take care of that kind of stuff for him because people don't say ugly things to my husband, and when they do, they get hit by me. <laughs> you well, know, and uh, and you don't flirt with my man when I'm there with him, you know. This gal came up one night, and she just didn't, uh, she wouldn't pay attention to me. I told her leave us alone, you know, and she wouldn't pay attention. She kept flirting with Keith, and you don't do that. Not when I'm in the room. And uh, I grabbed her by the back of her head and I threw her through a plate glass window. You know, and uh, and she was gone for about six weeks. We didn't see her for about six weeks. You know. and she came back to this dance one night and came up to me and she goes, Look at me. And her face was all scarred. And she said, They had to take skin off my hip to fix my face. And I looked at her with no compassion. No compassion at all because, you see, this is who I am. And I said, you got a new name. And after that, everybody called her Buttface. <laughs> that's the kind of person that I was. I'm not a proud of those kind of things, but that's where alcoholism was taking me. And if you're going to hang out with me, you're going to pay the price. Because I did. And I took it out on everybody around me. Uh, and uh, Keith came home one night and he said, babe, I want to go to California said, I said, no, I'm not going out there. It's too wild and crazy. We'll never go to California. Never raise children out there. He said, babe, you don't understand. You can go out there and you can go into a restaurant and they will serve you cocktails. You don't have to drink out of paper sacks anymore. You don't have to wear Levi's and boots out there. You can dress up and you can look like a lady. And a lady like you belongs out there. And I'm going, yeah, <laughs> yeah, you know, because I wanted to be a lady more than anything, yeah. You know? And uh, so we packed up all of our stuff, and Keith built this big old box, sprayed it bright blue, put it on wheels. We put all of our junk in it, hooked it on the back of our station wagon, and we got Simone and our German Shepherd and our cat in there, and we headed out for California. Now it should take three days to get there, but it took us 30 because we had to go by uh, Oklahoma City and get a prescription filled in a baggie at midnight, and I didn't see anything wrong with that. I denied that part of the disease. And so it took us the 30 days, because it depended on what he drank or what he took as to how far we went. And there was days we just stay put. And I remember there was mornings that I would wake up, and I would look at Keith to see how I was supposed to feel and how Simone was supposed to act. Because if Daddy's having a bad day and he doesn't feel good, we got to be quiet. Because you don't want to upset Daddy. You'll be good today. And uh, we did that for 30 days. We get out to... We were so crazy in that car. You know, it was unreal. Our dog got so crazy, he'd stand behind the driver's seat and wait for big trucks and chase him to the back of the station wagon. <laughs> Barking. <laughs> And he'd fall down on the cat, and they'd have a dog and cat fight, and Simone, they'd be on top of her, and she'd start bawling, and I'd turn around, and I'd start whacking and bitching, and and Keith would start drinking, and we did that one day at a time for 30 days. (laughs) And we got there, and we found a house, and we settled down, and Keith started going off working, and you know, he came home one Friday night, and he said, babe, would you like to go to dinner? And I said, oh, yeah because that's what I'd waited on. I wanted to be a lady. And if you're not going the places and doing the things, you can't be a lady. And so we go and we get at this restaurant. And I remember driving up this restaurant. It was a nice brick building. It had a neon sign with cocktails on it. it didn't have rosies painted on the window or Shangri-La carved in a board over the Quonset door of that building. It was a nice building. People were dressed up and they were going in there. And it's like, oh, my gosh, this is where I belong. And we go in there and they seat us and this guy comes over and he said, would you like a cocktail before dinner? It's like, yeah, because if somebody else is mixing it, you can't get drunk. And they come over and they set our cocktails down in front of us and we ordered Simona Shirley Temple. We didn't leave her out at all. And Keith picks up his glass and he said, babe, let's toast to the good life. And we're sitting there in all our glory and we're toasting to the good life and God, this is great. And we're okay and, and it's gonna be okay now. I didn't know he's gonna have ten to my one. I counted every one of them. <laughs> and I start looking around the room to see how I'm supposed to act. And I see these people and they got these long stem crystal glasses. And they got this stuff in it that's sparkling. They're swishing it and they're smelling it. And God, I wanna be like that because you see, if I can just be like you, I'll be okay because I was always comparing my insides to your outsides. I had to come here to find out that happiness is an inside job. And I watched those people, and God, I wanted to be a lady like them, because growing up in the trailer house, you don't have crystal and that kind of thing. And if I have that, I'll be a lady. And so the guy came over to take our order, and he said, Would you like wine with your dinner? And I said, Oh, you bet. And so pretty soon he comes over, and he sits these long stem crystal glasses down in front of us, and I'm going, Oh, my gosh. And he pours Keith just a little bit. And he says, is it okay? I said, what do you mean, is it okay? He drank stuff in Oklahoma and had things floating in (laughs) it. Pour mine. (laughs) And he poured mine. And I sit there in all my smug and arrogance. And I swished it. And I sniffed it. And I didn't know what I was doing. But, God, I felt good. I wanted to be a lady. And I was so... It was... It was wonderful. Until I look across the table at Keith, and he's drinking out of the (laughs) craft. And I just yell at him, what are you doing? And he said, I'm drinking. That's what I'm doing. And Simone says, not here. And she slides under the table. And I see the waiter, and I holler at him, come here, come over here. And I'm yelling at him. And he comes over at that table, and he looks right at me, and I hope I never forget it. He looks right at me, and he said, I'm sorry, you're not eating here. And I go, whoa! Why not? He said, "Because you don't know how to act." Whoa! You don't understand. If he wasn't acting like that, I wouldn't have to be this way. And we can never go back because, as we we're being escorted out, he's talking to everybody in sign language. <laughs> yeah, you know. and it was horrible. And we get home, and I get right in his face. Don't you ever treat us like that again. He said, Sue, get out of my face. And I'm just giving him the what force, and I take one step closer. And he said, Sue, if you don't get out of my face, I'm going to hit you. And I take one step closer, and he hits me. And the knockdown, drag-out fight is on. And he had me on the bed that night, and he had his arms his hands around my throat, and he's choking the living tar out of me. And I'm thinking, my God, if he doesn't let go of me, I'm going to die. I'm absolutely going to die right here. And I look up at him, and he's looking down at me with all the intensity he has. And it dawned on me, he's not thinking about nothing but me. I am number one in his life. I'm not having to compete with anything. And I loved it. I loved it. And so I started those situations a lot, because it was the only time I had a 100% of his attention. And we'd have those fights, and keep being a cowboy, he'd... He fought with guns, and I hated those guns. They shoot things, and it goes off when you don't want them to, and I hated it. And it's like, I'll show you. And I picked up a butcher knife, and I started fighting back with my butcher knife. Many times we stood toe-to-toe with that gun and knife. He put his gun right on the end of my nose, and I'd stick my knife right in his stomach. I remember one time he said, Sue, shut up, or I'm going to shoot you. Because I was a mouth. And... uh, and I stuck my knife right in his stomach, and I said, go for it. He goes, what are you talking about? If I shoot you, you're dead. And I said, I know, but when the bullet hits me, it'll knock me backwards, and the momentum will make the knife go forwards, and we'll both die at the same time, so go for it. And he looked at me, and he said, you're crazy.
1: <laughs> and I was. I was.
0: He'd been out drinking one night, and he came home. And uh, he went in the bedroom and laid down, and I was going to tell him all the things that we tell him. And he made an almost fatal mistake. He passed out on his stomach. And you don't ignore me when I'm talking to you.
1: <laughs>
0: and I took that butcher knife and I just started stabbing him all over his back saying, God, please help. God, please help do away with this. I didn't know that this that I was talking about was the disease of alcoholism. And then it's like I like, came to myself and I go, oh, my God, what's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? This is the man I'm supposed to love and I'm trying to kill him. What is wrong with me? And I lay down and I cry myself to sleep. Next morning, Keith wakes up and he sits up in bed and he goes, Oh, my gosh, something's wrong with my back. And I said, Well, let me see. You know? And he turned around, and I pulled his T-shirt up, and I said, You've been drinking all that rock gut whiskey. You've broken out with acne of the back.
1: <laughs>
0: and I said, But don't worry, honey. I'll get the rubbing alcohol, and I'll fix it. <laughs> and I loved it. <laughs> right. Al-Anon music. You know. And
1: uh,
0: we had a fight, and uh, he left, and uh, he didn't come back home. And that wasn't his pattern. And uh, I laid there in bed that night. And I thought, God, please kill him. God, please let him die out there. Let him get in the car wreck and let him kill himself. Don't let him hurt anybody else, but just kill him. And I'm praying those kind of prayers to God. And one more time I go, my God, what's happening to me? This is the man I'm supposed to love. I didn't know it was alcoholism. The insanity had stood in. Next morning I woke up and Keith still wasn't home and I was angrier than I was the night before. And I went in and I got Simone out of bed and I said, come on, Simone, we're going to go find your father. I didn't have a clue of where I'm finding. It's like looking for a needle in a haystack out there. It's really easy in Oklahoma. But God, in California, I didn't have a clue. And I thought, well, I'll start down in Orange, which is about 12 miles from where we live. We used to go to an after-hours club down there. And I thought, I'll start out there, and then I'll just go from there. And so Simone and I go down there, and we get about two blocks from that place. And I look over, and I see Keith's pickup over on the side street by this house. And there's motorcycles all over the lawn of that house. And by then, Keith had become a biker, and I was the most afraid of that image. And I thought, damn him. Damn him, he's in there with those hell's angels and he's drinking, he's getting drunk, he can't treat us this way, and I'll show him. And I took the keys of his pickup out of my purse and I walked over at that pickup and I drove that pickup two blocks from that house. And I walked back to my car and we got in my car and I drove my car two blocks in front of that pickup. And we went back my pickup and I drove the pickup two blocks in front of my car. It only took me four and a half hours to get both of those vehicles home, but I did it and I felt good. (laughs) He was stranded. And we was home for a couple hours and Keith called and he said, Sue, come and get me. All my smug and arrogance, I said, "Uh, you have one of your buddies bring you home. He goes, what are you talking about, buddies? And I said, you're over there in that house and you're drinking and using those hell's angels. You just let one of them bring you home. He goes, house, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm in jail i go jail, because at this point, the cops were at our house all the time. Either Simone would call them, the neighbors would call them, or I'd call them, and they were there all the time. And he'd gotten in jail by himself. (laughs) And he wasn't supposed to do that. And I'd say, you can't do that by yourself. And he'd go, whatever, Sue, just come and get me. And so I went down there, and I wrote a hot check, just like I always did, to bail him out of jail. And Simone would say, let's get Daddy." No, I'm not going to get your daddy. Your daddy is a rotten, no good son of a gun. He doesn't love you, and he doesn't love me, or he wouldn't act this way. Because, you see, I thought if he just loved us, he'd change. If he'd just love us, he wouldn't drink so much. I took the disease so personal, and Simone cried all the way home, and all the way home I'm telling her what a no good her dad is, and you think that the disease of alcoholism doesn't affect our children. And we're home for a couple hours and the doorbell rings and I go to the door and there's Keith. And he did the stupidest thing that he always did. I go, what do you want? And he introduced himself to me as if I didn't know him. He said, this is Keith Drum. I live here, you know. And I'd say, not anymore. He'd say, Sue, please let me in. I'd say, if you want in, you beg. You get on your knees and you beg. And he'd get on his knees in front of his own home to beg to get back in robbing that man of his dignity. I didn't know that alcoholism was a disease and that he was a, a sick man. And I was punishing a sick man. And I didn't know that I was just as sick as him and that Simone was too. And after I thought he had enough, I said, okay, you can come in now. And he looked back in the driveway and he goes, oh, babe, thanks for bringing my pickup home. I appreciate it. And I thought, damn him. I didn't do that to be nice. And that's the way our our life went. And alcoholism is a progressive disease and it starts getting worse. And we'd have those fights and he'd walk off. He'd be done. And I'd turn around and there'd be Simone standing there. And I didn't know what to do with that rage on the inside of me. What do you do with it? I'd turn around, and there's Simone, and I'd take the rest off of of it out on her. One time she looked at me, and I was banging her head against the wall, and she'd say, Mommy, I know why you're doing this. You're showing Daddy you can act just like him. And I thought, how does she know that? I didn't know that. It's a family disease. One night, Keith and I got in a fight, and I fell down on the floor, and I got the whole side of my face kicked in. And I went to work the next day, and like I said, I was always divorcing Keith or he was going to divorce me and leave me. And I remember people at work used to ask me all the time, does your husband beat you? And I'd say, no, if he ever laid a hand on me, I'd leave him. And I'd make up all kinds of reasons you know, why I looked the way I did. I started believing most of them because of the denial that I lived in. Because, you see, if I tell the truth, I've got to do something about it, and I have no answers, and I don't know what to do. And so I'd lie. And at noon, I went across the hall of this attorney that I'd been to before. And I walked in and he looked at me and he said, Oh my gosh, Sue, what happened to you? And I said, Keith and I had a fight. He said, Do you fight like this all the time? And I said, No, only when he drinks. He said, Do you think he's an alcoholic? And I said, I don't know what that is. He said, It's somebody that can't stop drinking. And I said, Then he must be one because he can't quit. And I said, I busted bottles, I poured out booze, I I filled bottles up with water, he got drunk on water all the time.
1: <laughs>
0: and he looked at me and he said the magic words, if you love him, if you love him, why don't you take him to Alcoholics Anonymous? And I said, what is that? He said, that's a place where people go to stop drinking. It's like, whoa, I got an answer. So I finished working that day and I went home that night and and I got home and Keith laying on the couch and and I said, I went to an attorney today. And he told me if I loved you, I'd take you to a thing called Alcoholics Anonymous. And Keith looked at me with all the sincerity he had and he said, babe, I thought it would come to this. He said, so I called a man in Alcoholics Anonymous today and he showed me, he told me where there's a meeting that's just right down the street here from our house. I said, good, we'll go. And he said, well, we'll see. I didn't know he was on a court card that day. I wanted to believe that he loved us enough that he wanted to change. But he had been to court that day and he was on a court card and they'd sentenced him to Alcoholics Anonymous. But because I took it so personal, I wanted to believe it was me. Selfish and self-centered and self-seeking through someone else. The disease of alcoholism. Me, 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 me. It's all about me. We had a newcomer walk in our meeting the other night and we asked for a newcomer's name. She goes, me, me. I go, oh,
1: great. <laughs> she fits. <laughs>
0: And so I'd ask him what time does that meeting start? He said 8.30, and I said, okay. So I hurried up, and I fixed dinner. Because you're going to take him to a place like that, you got to cook first. Because I'd quit cooking a long time ago, because the food always ended up on the floor, on the walls or the ceiling or somewhere. So I hurried up, and I cooked for him. And, and we ate, and Simone and I hurried and started doing the dishes. And at 8 o'clock, I went and got my butcher knife, and I go over at the sofa, and I jab him, and I said, get up. He said, what for? I said, we're going to go to that meeting Alcoholics Anonymous. He said, I don't think I want to. And I jabbed him again. I said, I think you do. <laughs> and so we go out and we get in the car and he told me where that meeting was. And we pull up in front of that church and there's the AA sign out there. And I said, what time's this meeting over? He said, 10. And I said, I'm going to tell you something, dude. You come out of that door before 10 o'clock and I'll gut you. Now, when I got to al you told me I couldn't keep a, a drunk sober. But I did for four months sitting in that parking lot every Monday night with my butcher knife. (laughs) The sad part about that story is there was an Al-Anon meeting there at the exact same time. But you see, what I understand today is this program is for people who want it, not for people who need it. I needed this program just as bad then as I do today. But I hadn't gotten to the want to. And I believe that every member of Al-Anon has to hit a bottom just like every grunt goes in order to find the solution. And I wasn't ready. And when I thought he had enough, I let him go by himself, and he got struck drunk immediately. And the next four years of our life was total living hell. Because the disease gets worse, it never gets better. It's a progressive disease. And it got worse in me, just like it did in him, and the violence progressed in me. And I'm not proud of all the things that I did. But I know who I am. And I don't ever want to forget who I am because our past is our greatest asset. And I was raised around here on the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous because the long-timers that were here when I got here, that's the only literature they had. And I am so grateful for that. And a lot of times after I share, people come up and say, oh, i got to go to Al-Anon. No, you don't. Stay in AA. Don't come wind us. <laughs> And the only reason I say that is because Al-Anon doesn't have 12 steps. Our fifth tradition says we study the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. Thank you, Alcoholics Anonymous, for giving your steps to us so we can get into recovery, the families of. I did not have those answers. But I know because of that big book, I have the disease. And I know that I had to hit a box. And I am so grateful for that. And I don't ever want to forget the last drunk in our home. And I remember standing in that home and Keith and I would had a fight and he had turned on Simone and he had her over in the corner and he was doing all the things that he used to do to her that I never saw before. And it's like I saw it for the very first time. And a calmness came over me and I don't know what it was. I didn't feel angry and I didn't feel happy. I felt nothing. I was so numb. And I remember looking at him and saying, oh my gosh, he's not even a good father anymore. I have no excuses left. And I looked at him and I didn't go grab my butcher knife. And I didn't scream and yell and cuss. God, I was a trash mouth when I got here. And I looked at him and I very calmly I said, Keith, I don't love you anymore. But I don't hate you either. And if you got to become a skid-roll bum, because that's what I thought happened to drunks, and that's what you got to do. But Simone and I ain't going any further with you. And Simone and I very quietly got some things together, and we walked out of that house for the very last time. And I am so grateful for that. You see, in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, right after the steps in the fifth chapter, it's got the answer to the Alamots. It has our answer. No human power can relieve their alcoholism. And that God could and would if he was sought. Once I said no to that alcoholic. Once I got out of the way and quit being the excuse. Because Keith had come home from those AA meetings and he would be different. But I wasn't. And I had to get in his face. And let him know what he wasn't doing. You see, I know today that a sober alcoholic can't go home to an old idea and stay sober. They'll either have to leave to stay sober, or they'll end up drunk. They cannot stay sober in an environment they used to drink in. And Keith kept coming home for four years to an old idea. And when I hit a bottom and I got out of the way, God and booze got to do for that man what I could never do. And I am so grateful for that. We were gone for about four days, and I don't remember those four days, but I remember on the last day, was in an apartment, it was empty, and I was in the corner, and I was sitting there, and I was rocking, and a 12 year old girl standing there with her hand on her shoulder saying, Mommy, it's gonna be okay. The child is comforting the adult. And she says, mommy, I gotta go home. I gotta get some things for school. Please, mommy, take me home. And I finally said, okay. And we go home, we drive up to that house and we don't know what we're gonna find. We're afraid because Keith used to be committing suicide all the time, or he's killing our pets all the time, or whatever. And so we didn't know what we was gonna find. And we walked in that house. And we go in there and it was dark and we looked around in all the rooms and we finally got the back bedroom and Keith's face down on the bedroom floor. And we thought he was dead, so we kicked him. <laughs> and he rolls over and he looks at me and he said, Sue, please help me. And this is when I know that God worked in my life for sure. And he gave me the power to be powerless over alcoholism. And he gave me the big word that I've never said before. The power to say one word that I could never say. No. I don't know where that came from. It had to be God. I was all powerful. And I looked at that man and I said, no. No, if you want help, go help yourself. There had to be a power greater than me giving me that kind of strength. And Keith got up off the floor and he went and made some phone calls for himself. Thank God. And we had to fight with a gun and a knife one more time because that's who we are. And the doorbell rings and I go to the door and there's this gray-headed, shriveled-up little man standing there. And I'm thinking, geez, why don't they send the big ones on these trips?
1: <laughs>
0: and I open the door and I let little Jack Callahan walk in our house. Thank God. I love him so much. He's still in our life today. He brags about what a good Al-Anon 12-stepper he is. And the reason he is is because he went exactly by the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. He carried the message to the family of. And he asked me to go with him to take Keith to a detox, and I did. And he got back home, and we sat in the driveway. And he said, I've seen Keith around AA before. But something's happened to him this time, and I think he wants it but he'll never make it coming home to you. He said, I've been with you all night long, and nothing but trash has come out of your mouth. And he's the one that told me that a sober alcoholic can't stay sober living in an environment they used to live in. I sponsor a lady that uh, she's got two years in this program. And she's doing better, but her husband still drinks and uses. And in the middle of their living room, you can see where he sleeps because his cigarette burns all around the carpet in the circle. He sleeps there every night. And when I went over to her house after sponsoring her for a while and I saw that house, I said, no wonder he's still drinking. His house is still drunk, too. Because it was all the windows were shut. All the weeds were around. You couldn't hardly see that house from the curb. And all the drapes were pulled inside. And I said, Barbara, please sober this house up. You cannot sober up a drunk, but you can this house. And she gradually started working in the yard and getting the, the weeds and the trash out of her yard. And then she started putting up little lacy curtains. And she started painting her house. And you know what? Her husband can go to work today. He still drinks, but he doesn't lay in the middle of that floor now. The environment around him is starting to change. She is contributing to a healthier environment. I don't believe that Alamans can sober up drunks, but I do believe that we can enhance sobriety. I do believe that we can be examples of what sober living is supposed to be. And I believe we can be very influential in that. And I also know that we can't live with old ideas once we get with recovery. I don't know what's going to happen with Barbara and her husband. But I do know that it's gradually getting better. And you know why he told her the other day that he loved her? He hadn't said that for years. They had a pool that hadn't been cleaned forever. Her husband has false teeth. And he had gotten drunk one time and lost his teeth, couldn't find them. And she got a pool service come over and clean all the moss and everything out of that pool and they found his teeth. <laughs> he was so excited. He said, Babe Alanon's doing wonders for you. I believe we can contribute to a healthy environment. I love this way of life. I started going to Al-Anon once a week, and Simone started going to Alateen once a week. And after he cut out of the detox, he started going to a meeting every day, and that was good. He was sicker than us. He needed more. (laughs) After about six weeks, he wasn't minding. He wasn't coming home from the meetings when he was supposed to. And I got angry one night. It was 11 o'clock, and he was supposed to be home about 10.30. And you're not going to treat me this way, sober. And I'm getting angry. And I'm thinking, God, I can't feel this way. I've got to remember some of the things I've heard in these meetings. I'm not supposed to act this way. I'm supposed to be grateful for sobriety. So I thought, okay, I'm going to take a warm bath and try to relax and think, what am I going to do? You know, and I'm going to start thinking some good stuff. And I'm going to be better by the time he gets home. And One of the neat things about our disease is that when we got here, we had no friends left. We didn't have to make any excuses to any friends or anybody of what we were doing. Nobody asked us. And all the people that we had met in our lives from day one in this program are our friends. It's like, okay, I know he's down at a coffee shop somewhere with at least six sober alcoholics. I could kill him now, and he'd have bears. That's how well I was getting on one meeting a week. And so he came home, and my mouth was attached to the doorknob just like it has always been, and I was right in his face, you're not going to treat us this way again. And he said, Sue, get out of my face. And I take one step closer, and I'm letting him know. And he said the most devastating thing to me had ever said to me. He said, Sue, get out of my face. I can't hit you anymore and stay sober. My sobriety comes first. You're going to have to fix yourself. Whoa, I went nuts. <laughs> I took out running down the hall, and I ran in the bathroom, and I whirled around and slammed the door. And as I whirled around, I saw a crazy woman in that mirror. And I saw reality. And the words came to me, and I know it was God talking to me, and it was just very simple. One meeting a week is not going to fix you. And I know one meeting a week is not going to fix me. I go to at least four or five Al-Anon meetings a week and at least one AA speaker meeting, because that's what I was directed to do in the very beginning. And they told me to go to the AA speaker meeting so I'd know that I didn't live with the only crazy sucker in town. (laughs) And I am so grateful I had that kind of direction because that's where I learned to laugh. Because you guys were so crazy. You were laughing at the things that we used to cry about. And you made it okay. And I had a lady in my life, her name was Elsa Chamberlain. And she'd say, you got to give it the light touch. You take yourself too serious. This is no big deal. you got to start enjoying life because God wants us to be happy, joyous, and free. And God, I love that lady so much. She gave me so much. And I enjoy life today. It hasn't always been easy, but the saving grace is that we started getting involved in service. And Simone and I started getting involved in service, and my sponsor always said, you ask Keith if he wants to go with you when you go to a service meeting, a convention meeting like this kind of thing. And so we'd always do that. And he'd say, no, I ain't going to go there. Everybody's got on their plastic smiles and they're phony and they're hugging each other. And I ain't going to go do that. <laughs> and Simone and I just kept doing that in about three years in the program. I remember one Sunday we was gonna, got out and we was getting dressed. And Keith goes, what are you doing? And, and see, I used to go to World Service and Intergroup every Saturday. Every Saturday I was in a some kind of a service meeting because I hated weekends. They were years long. And so I'd go to those service meetings and I'd spend the whole day and then I could go home Saturday night, evening and fix dinner and we'd go to an AA speaker meeting. And we were in the program all the time because they said that home was only where I hung out in between meetings. And they were right because going to all those meetings and being with you made home okay because we went home with a good attitude. We were taking speaker's inventories instead of each other's. You know? And that was okay because we were talking about the answer and who heard the right answer, you know, and what they'd really said, you know, and and talking about people in the meetings, what they were going through and how they were getting through it. You know, and we'd sit there with each other in the car on the way home, and we would share the answer with each other. We had something to share without taking each other's inventory. It was a no-no. We couldn't do that. We were told that by strong sponsors. You cannot take each other's inventories. That the program of Alcoholics Anonymous is going to fix Keith, not you. It is none of your business if he ever takes another drink ever again. And I know that's none of my business today. Working with newcomers. And my sponsor is my business today. And because of that, Keith and I have a healthy relationship and I remember that one Sunday morning, Simone and I were getting dressed up and ready to go to that convention planning meeting. She said, where are you going? And I said, we're going to that A.A. convention planning meeting because it has Al-Anon and al participation. He said, you want to go? And I'll never forget. He said, you know what, I don't think I have anything better to do today. And he went. And he sat in the back of the room. Simone and I knew everybody there, and we was up in the front. Nah, I ain't going to sit up there with And he sat in the back of the room by himself because he has choices. He's not a reflection of me anymore. And he sat back there, and he had his cowboy hat pulled down. He was there. He wasn't happy, but he was there. And it was a great place for him to be. And I loved the man that was the chairman that year. His name was Jim Haggerty, and he died the year after that convention, and I know he was in Keith's life for a purpose. He said, I need a marathon candle chairman. And he pointed at Keith, and he said, would you do that for me? Keith said, cool. (laughs) Acted like it was no big deal. But I'll tell you what, for the next six months, we had big candles, little candles, fat candles, skinny candles that we would light on Friday to make sure they would burn till Sunday. Because they had to be in the marathon meeting running all weekend. He was the best candle chairman of Southern California ever. And that's how our family started coming back together, was through you. Through you, sharing the message with us, getting us involved, being on H&I panels and carrying the message. And I started going to women's prisons, and people used to say in AA, what does Al-Anon do in prison? And I said, there's women in there just like me. And we need an Al-Anon panel in the women's prison in Chino. And I kept telling the H&I coordinators, I want to go on a panel in the woman's prison. And finally, after three years of doing that, this H&I chairman came up to me, and she said, Sue, I finally got an al non panel in there. Would you want to go with me? And I said, oh, yeah. And so I went in there with Diane. And she got up, and she shared her story. And, and they're going, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And then she asked me to share, and I got up, and I shared my story blew me away, they sort of,
1: woof, 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 woof,
0: (laughs) when I'd talk about stabbing Keith. They loved it. (laughs) And this little gal came up to me afterwards, and she said, Sue, I'm just like you. I know I'm an Al-Anon. Thank you for coming in here. And I said, well, wait a minute. Most everybody in this meeting is either an alcoholic or an addict did you drink and use when you were doing what you did to get in here? And she said, no. I was stone sober, just like you and I are right now. I stood in my living room and I watched my drunk husband put a hole in my nine-year-old daughter's head with a .45. She said, but I picked that gun up and I showed him. I got even. And she said, but I couldn't prove I didn't kill my daughter too and I'm doing a double life term in here. And I stood there and I said, but for the grace of God. Now I know why I needed to come in here. I needed to hear that. And I have heard many, many stories. One of the Manson girls did her fifth step with me. And she did stuff that she did because she wanted to please a man. I identified with her. We are all sick people. It doesn't matter where we're at. But you know what? Those ladies sponsor people in that prison today because they know they're permanent and they have helped so many people. And we go in that prison all the time. Keith had a panel. I've had a panel in that woman's prison for 17 years and there's never been a dark night. And he started a panel in there, an AA panel, and they love him. They literally love him. And two years ago at their AA banquet at Christmas, they voted him Man of the Year. (laughs) My sponsor gave me a bumper sticker that says, My husband is Man of the Year at (laughs) CIW.
1: And
0: we love him. We love him. Simone goes in there with us when she comes home at Christmas. You know, Keith shared last night that 17 years ago she moved to Italy to become the model, and she did. And she's very instrumental in helping the program over there grow with their literature, translating literature into Italian, starting conventions like this because they didn't have them, starting women's conferences you know, starting Alateen and Preteen over there. She's literally a pioneer in that program over there. And she just finished up her three-year commitment as delegate for Italy. And she's kept active the whole time. And when she comes home at Christmas, she always says, What do you want for Christmas? And we say, Well, you go to prison to the AA banquet with us. She said, I know I'm the only kid in the world. Their parents want to go to prison. <laughs> And they love seeing her, and they, and you know what, those inmates in there, when we first started going in there, we take books. We take our one day at a time, our courage to change books, and we give them away by calling numbers, whatever they signed in at. And 17 years ago, they'd steal those books from each other. And we take those books in there now. And last week, this one lady said, we called a number, and she said, I have one, give mine to somebody else. And they, uh Simone, uh, 21 months ago, had our granddaughter. And uh, you don't leave things laying around in a prison. Yeah. And they wanted to see what our granddaughter looked like because Simone had been home with, with Nicole. And I shared that with them because we share everything with them. They know us. And I took a picture. They asked me if I'd bring a picture of my grandbaby in there. And I took that picture in there. And I said, I'd like to have this back before I leave tonight. And I let that picture go. And when that meeting was over, they brought it back to me. I love those women in there and I know they love me because we're on the same path. There is only one path to walk down. Our family's on that path. You're on that path today, and it's just one day at a time. We just got to stay on this path one day at a time. Walk toward God and the light of the Spirit, and let it shine on us, and let it bring us back to Him. We went to hell. The difference between religion and hell is that people in religion are afraid to go to hell, and spirituality is for those of us that have been there. And that's why we're on this spiritual path, and there's only one. And Keith and I walk this path together, side by side, two strong people standing up, not two sick people leaning on each other anymore. And at the end of that path, it comes together. And it has come together for us, and I am so grateful. And I'm so grateful for Simone that she has stayed in this program for herself. She lives in Italy. She doesn't have to be in this program because her dad's over here, the alcoholic who got her to the the program. But she needs it for herself. It's a way of life. And her husband loves her being in the program. He is not a drunk. He doesn't drink or use or nothing. We can't find nothing wrong with this man. (laughs) And he loves her, and he loves us. And they gave us a granddaughter. And I got to go over there when that baby was born. And I never thought of Simone being an only child. She used to babysit for kids, but I never thought of her being an only child. But she wanted her mom over there with her. And I got to do that, and I'm so grateful. And I went over there, and I remember standing in her house. And she's 30, she was 36 years old. She had no holes in the walls. Nobody was yelling at each other in there. And I looked at that baby and I thought, maybe this baby will never have to see his parents drunk. Maybe the chain of alcoholism has been broken in our family. Maybe. What we always pray for. And God, it was a neat deal to be there with my daughter that used to hate my guts, she'd say. I hate your guts. And for me to go over there, and this program has mended that relationship, and she loves me, and she respects her mother, and she wanted her mother there. And I sat there, and she was nursing Nicole, and Nicole got the hiccups, and she said she nurses so fast she gets the hiccups all the time. And I said, well, why don't you nurse her for a little bit and then burp her and then let her nurse some more? And Simone looked at me, and she goes, what's a burper? And I thought, I know why I'm here. God. And she got to come home last Christmas and bring that baby, and then this last July she brought Nicole home. And we got to go to Oklahoma and see Keith Sr., Keith's dad. And he's a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And the reason we went is because he was given an award for practicing law in the state of Oklahoma for 60 years. And the senator and, and people were there, dignitaries, looking at it, giving an award to a drunk. If they knew that man that I knew, they wouldn't have been there. I used to hate it when he had come to see us at Christmas time because then I'd have two drunks. And God, this man's sober. And we were there because he is. Because he's a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous, we wanted to support him because we're proud of our daddy. Because he's sober. And we got to watch him go through that. And they asked if we had anything to share. And they didn't have a meeting in that town that night. But they had one that day. And they didn't even know it. And they asked Keith to share. And Keith got up and he shared about how him and his dad used to be bitter enemies. But for the last 24 years, they've started bonding, and they had a great, tremendous relationship. And that they didn't have to go to jail together anymore, and all that kind of stuff, you know. And the people, yeah. <laughs> and then they asked Simone to share, and Simone shared about a loving God in her grandpa's life, and how she respects her grandpa because she can see the God in his life. And they asked me to share, and I shared about the power in that room, the power of love that helped us love and respect my father-in-law and what a great person he is today. Nobody said anything about Alcoholics Anonymous or sobriety, but it was there. And we had our meeting, and Dad knew it. You gave us that kind of a life. Everybody in our life is in recovery. My mom's not in recovery. She didn't like me for 17 years. But my brother passed away a couple of years ago, and I went back to help my mom. And you called me. My girls that I sponsored called me while I was there and would talk to my mother. My mother rejected me 17 years ago because she said, I love you more than I do her, and when I give you up, then she would take me back. And in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, it says job, no job, family, no family. We must choose this way of life or we will surely die. And I chose this program and my mom wouldn't speak to me for 17 years. And two years ago when I went back from my brother's funeral, people in my program called, my home group called me there to talk to me. And she said, who are you? And they said, we're al And she said, okay, and she'd she'd had the phone to me, and she finally said, are you the president of that outfit out there? (laughs) And I said, no. And she said, why do you cost each other so much? And I said, we help each other. When we're in trouble, we support each other, and we get each other through there. When we're in a bad place, we need each other so much, we need the contact, and we help each other. And so I get a phone call, and she picks up the phone, and she says, hello, I'm this one of the girls from my home group. And. And my mom said, are you in trouble? And she said, no, you are. (laughs) And my mom's going, I am. And she goes, yeah, and we're we're calling to support you and tell you that we love you. After four days, after four days and I'm getting ready to leave, my mom said, you tell your people when you get back how much I love them. You did in four days what I couldn't do in 17 years. You can put families back together. Because God uses people to help other people. And God used you to help me with my mom. God used you to help us with my father-in-law. God used you to help me and my daughter. God used you to help Keith and I. Worked on my relationship with my higher power and everything else started being okay. I started carrying this message to inmates. And my husband hasn't gone to jail since then. <laughs> this is a way of life. God uses people to help other people. And I want to close with a story that only explains how my God works. And it's about a little boy who was laying in bed one night, and there was a thunder and lightning and hailstorm going on outside. And he got afraid, and he went in and he got in bed with his mom and dad. And he's laying there next to his daddy, and he's shivering and shaking, and his daddy cuddles him up, and he goes, Son, what's wrong with you? He said, Daddy, I was afraid. I was in there, I was all alone. I was by myself, and I was afraid, Daddy. And his daddy cuddles him up more, and he said, Son, you didn't have to be afraid in there. You weren't alone. God was in there with you. And the little boy looked up, and he said, Yeah, I know, Daddy. But right now I need something with skin on it. And that's what you are to me. You are my God with skin on it. Thank you for being there.